this week, we've got another great episode coming up. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we thought we had Tully Blanchard, and then the scheduling conflict came up, so we didn't get him. And uh, Tully and I kept going back and forth, and we finally we got him. And we have one of the legendary horsemen, one of the original uh, horsemen. And uh, he's another great story. That is coming up. Let's get to it. Let's get to the main event here today on Primetime with Sean Mooney. Let's hear from Tully Blanchard. Ding, ding, ding. Well, folks, I uh, am uh, really honored to have our guest here this week here on Primetime with Sean Mooney. Uh, it took us a little bit to get together, but I'm uh, glad we finally did. I uh, met and got to work with Tully Blanchard when uh, I was with the WWF doing the backstage interviews. And, of course, he was the Brain Busters at the time, along with Arn Anderson. But by the time he got to the World Wrestling Federation, uh, his legacy was set. Uh, he was a member of one of the most incredible tag teams and uh and, and, and the brand, I think, stands to this day as one of the, the greatest ever in professional wrestling. The Four Horsemen, of course, you all know about that. But, Tully, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Sean, thank you for having me on, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. You know, I mentioned the Four Horsemen, so we might as well start there. And um, I've heard you talk before about, uh, you know, that that uh, combination of uh, human beings that came together in the ring. Uh, you, along with Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, and Ole Anderson, uh, you've mentioned chemistry, but why Why did it work so well? And, and and at that period of time, was just everything right? Was it kind of the perfect storm for everything to come together? Um, I, I think it was part the the perfect storm, but as as you know and most people know now, there's so much thought put into promotions and gimmicks and images and everything. And this was something that was not produced from a promoter or a group of guidance counselors or anything else. It, it was simply an eight man tag match and Arn Anderson for whatever reason in the middle of an interview called us the four horsemen Mm -hmm. and it clicked and we had a couple of weeks or maybe even three weeks or a month of those eight man tag matches. Yeah. And, uh, it was, it was, um, a, a tremendous, uh, thing when when Arn did that and about the third week um after doing that we uh we noticed that fans were starting to wear sunglasses and sport coats and sitting in the ringside <laughs> and college students and that's when I can remember we were in the Greensboro Coliseum when Jim Crockett was standing in the tunnel and he said and he saw the, the whole second row was a bunch of college kids wearing sunglasses and sport coats. And he said, this thing's getting over. Mm. And I went, I, I was a little bit smart aleck at that part of my life. Yeah. And uh, said something uh, apropos. <laughs> but it was... Uh, uh, Gosh, it was just phenomenal. And and 
the reason you still hear about it today, this, the reason that when we go and do an autograph show like we did in Knoxville at the, the Comic-Con thing a couple of months ago, we signed autographs for four hours on Friday and yeah. for four hours on Saturday, nonstop. Yeah. yeah, I've seen it. Nonstop, all five of us. And, you know, I mean, this is 30 years after the fact. Yeah, it is incredible. And you mentioned, you said, you know, it wasn't produced, it wasn't created in a sense, you know, that kind of came about, like you said, in interviews. Um, you know, you're well-versed in the Bible, and it's from the book of Revelations, uh, you know, 6, 1 through 8. And I don't know if you guys ever got that deep into it, but uh, really, the branding of it is just, to, like you said, to this day. And all you have to do is raise four fingers, and people know, oh, yeah, four horsemen. Uh did you guys know at the time, and of course, it wasn't like the machine that, you know, the WWE became as far as merchandise went, but back then, were you guys aware of, of what that brand meant or was you were just doing your thing and it was working? Well, we were, we were doing our thing and, and, um, I can remember reading an article about the, the four horsemen backfield from Notre Dame. Yes. Right. And that was a break off of the four horsemen in, in, the uh, of the book of revelation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, it, it, that, that part of my life back then, I mean, the Bible was not part of it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Although, although I did quote Reverend Ike a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine if it would have been what you also could have done, uh, with the, you know, it was the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It was uh, definitely something you guys could have built on. And and we are going to talk a lot more about, uh, you know, the four horsemen and how it all came together and then uh, had other people step in. But Tully, I always love to talk about uh, the beginnings of, of my guests because in pretty much every single case, these are very, very inspirational stories. Um, and, and, uh, you know, you can be, uh, a, a big, uh, big fan of professional wrestling, but you can learn so much from your lives. And, um, I know, uh, where you grew up, you, you were kind of destined to be in the business, but, um, really you come from a great, uh, athletic genes. I mean, your father, Joseph Blanchard was a professional football player, uh, with, in the Canadian football league, uh, right. Was, uh, I mean, was he, I mean, just to play professional football, I don't know what the level was in, in Canada at that time, but was that a, uh, you know, to reach the level, how organized was it at that point in time? And what did the professional football look like back then? And do you remember uh, it all? Going? Well, I was, I wasn't born when dad yeah, was up there played? playing football. Yeah. Because um, he went up there in 50, uh -huh. uh, in 51, 52 and 53. Uh -huh. And I mean, Canadian football was as organized as American football at the time. I mean, they were playing for the gray cup and, yeah. uh, they were all, they were only allowed, I think seven imports, which were American guys. Right. Uh, so everybody else had to be, uh, Canadian or, 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 uh, some other nationality, but not come from the U S Mm -hmm. And my dad played Wilbur Snyder was on that, on that team. Gene Kaniski was on that team. 
uh, and uh, Daryl Royal, that was his very first head wow. coaching job. Well, wow, I didn't know that. Eskimos. Yeah, and he and, played in the uh, I think the, the Grey Cup, which is uh, their version of of the Super Bowl. I think in '52. So he he had to be quite a quite a uh, an athlete and quite a, a football player. Oh, he was he played and was uh, uh, the Big Seven champion in 1950. Played <laughs> played football and wrestled at Kansas State, <laughs> and uh, uh, graduated from there. And uh, oh yeah, my my dad was was. Uh, uh, a very, very good lineman and a very good amateur wrestler. And, uh, he didn't want me to be a lineman. So he taught me how to throw a football. Yeah. yeah well, uh, and this is kind of a side note. Um, but, uh, then doing my research, I, I learned that he played with a guy named Ted Tully in Edmonton. Yeah. And I just wondered, did that have any connection to your name? <laughs> oh, absolutely. That really? was my dad's roommate. And best friend, wow. and I was named after him, and uh, that was uh, a pretty neat thing. And actually, got to meet Ted Tully one time. Uh, oh, that's fantastic! Well, your dad also he got into professional wrestling. Um, realized that um, there was another way to go to probably have a more lucrative and a stable home life, I would imagine. But uh, he became a promoter. I guess he worked with with uh, Jim Barnett. Um, how did that all come together? When did he have that realization that this was a better way to go? And maybe he had more of a business acumen about him and realized that he could uh, make a living doing that. Well, he, he was, he was, he was working for the booking office in Indianapolis uh -huh. when we moved there in 19, I think we moved there in 59 and 60, 61, 62. My brother was born in 61 and then we moved to Texas because my dad was working in the office and seeing the that end of it and the television end of it. And he started doing some of the voiceovers and stuff like that for uh, the promotion there in Indianapolis. And uh, then we moved to Texas. The, the promoter in San Antonio was let my dad buy into the promotion. Mm -hmm. And that's how we ended up in San Antonio. And that was in 1964 when we moved here. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. And, um, and he just, he, I mean, he, he was smart enough to see the guys that were really making the money. What weren't the guys taking bumps every night, but it was the promoters. Yeah. And, um, and that was, that was true. A lot of wrestlers were very successful promoters my dad was successful, but my dad had too big a heart and, and paid way too much, uh, to the wrestlers. Mm. And, uh, most promoters paid like 29% of the gate was the wrestlers, uh, end of it. And then how they split that up between the main events and whatever, uh, was, was another thing. And, and my dad, I think our accountant told us one time we were paying like 42%. Wow. And, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was not a sustainable thing. It was great. The guys liked my dad. He was a great payoff guy, yeah. but we needed to stay in business and, and it was, it was difficult. And then later on when we 
we're on the USA network and, and, uh, trying to pay 7,000 a week to be on, on the air there. And, uh, we couldn't make it, couldn't, couldn't make it happen. And, uh, that's when, that's when Vince went in and paid the bill and took the TV time. Yeah. And I, I think you mentioned that, uh, that promotion was one of the first ever on, on, uh, USA network, or maybe even a, a network at that time. Was that, is that well, true? You had, you had the Superstation. station. Uh, right. there was still wrestling on the Superstation, which was Georgia championship wrestling. Then you had WGN out right. of Chicago. And then you had, and I forget the call letters, but the, the next one was the New York station. Uh, but the first wrestling show on the USA network was Southwest championship wrestling. Yeah. And that was my dad's show. Yeah. And that was uh, probably very expensive and you didn't uh, have the, the foresight probably at the time of what you needed to do to be able to, to stay in, like you said, to sustain that, but you well, grew up pretty much the wrestling business at that time, Sean, Yeah, the wrestling shows were infomercials. They weren't the product. And that was cable television made the wrestling shows become the product. And, and that is where it is today. And we couldn't make the TV show pay for itself. All right. So you basically bought the time, right? You were, you weren't, uh, yes. Yeah. Seven grand a week. Right. Right. Instead of having big chunk. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, really. I mean, if anybody (laughs) thinks about that, that was seven grand a week at the time. And, uh, you know, trying to stay on the air had, could not have been easy, but you pretty much, you grew up around the business. Um, but you were also, you were also a tremendous athlete. So even though you were, you were in this, did you always have in your mind that you were maybe going to play professional sports? Was that something your father wanted to see you do as, uh, you know, basically following his footsteps as he did earlier on, what was, what was going on when you were growing up as far as your path? Well, my dad my dad wanted me to be the best that I could be. And, uh, I was, I was, uh, very good in high school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then I was got a college scholarship to, I went to SMU. I had, mo- I had a number of scholarship offers, but I chose SMU cause I wanted to play for Hayden Fry. And then he got fired in the middle of my freshman year. Yeah. And then I didn't get along with the new head coach very well. And they didn't have an offense that, and they didn't like me and I didn't mm-hmm. like it. And so I ended up dropping out of school and I went to uh, junior college. So I wouldn't have to redshirt sit out a year. Uh, and I graduated from junior college in uh, 1974. And then I went to uh, West Texas state <laughs> as a junior college transfer and I, I started out there for three years and graduated from West Texas. Wow. They should rename that school, though. It should have been uh, Professional Wrestling U, considering you're <laughs> the alum. I mean, seriously. There, there, are, there, there are a number of very good professional wrestlers yeah. and, and a lot of Hall of Famers. I mean, oh, absolutely. You start looking at it. Yeah. Uh, well, the Funks, uh, and then uh, Dusty, uh, uh, Dusty, Stan Hansen, right? Sant- Stan yeah. Hansen, Tito yeah. Santana, Bruiser Brody. Uh, so who was there when you were there at that time? Was was Ted? Uh, DiBiase was there right. for, um, 
Ted hurt his hurt his leg and was married and had had uh, a child. And when I came up there the first year, he he got hurt in, in two a days and missed the year, and then went to spring training, and uh, that would have been the spring of seventy five. Mm. I think yeah, seventy five. Uh-huh. And then uh, Ted wrestled. They they had changed. They were changing the rule, the NCAA rule that you could be a professional in one sport and an amateur in another. And uh, Ted wrestled during the summer and was very successful. And I think he decided that feeding his family and making yeah. money was a better choice than going back and horsing around playing football. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, so he really didn't, didn't play, but Tito Santana and I played together my sophomore year. He was a senior and then he went to, uh, he played, he, he went to Kansas city and was the last cut for the chiefs. And then the next year he went to Vancouver and played up there for a year or two. I don't remember just exactly. Well, I think you you were the starting quarterback on that team and, and, uh, that may have been your path to the pros, but, um, I believe, I mean, there was a a horrific accident you were involved in. And and is that what changed the course of your life? As far as your profession, well, it, it certainly had a, a major impact on it. it uh, when did that happen, Tilly? That happened the spring of my when I was at junior college. Oh, okay. And and uh, the the Blackwood brothers that played for the Miami Dolphins, yeah, Glenn and Lyle, their middle brother Mike was in my class. We all went to high school together, uh-huh. and. Um, uh, so I had just got back from the the spring s- session of summer of school, getting ready for summer school, and uh, Mike and I were out horsing around and shouldn't have been uh, having a few cocktails and and we ended up uh, getting over in the other lane in, in front of a pickup truck that hit right behind my door. And it sliced me from the middle of my chest to the middle of my back under my right arm, which was my throwing arm. And, uh, I severed all five of my lap muscles. Oh, wow. And And you were still able to throw after that. (laughs) That was in April of 1974. And, uh, I had already been told that I was going to get a scholarship to West Texas and everything else. And, and so uh, I spent two weeks in the hospital, and then when I got out of the hospital, we started rehabbing and throwing and everything else and worked very, very hard. But I still had to go back to junior college to graduate, so I'd be oh. eligible. Oh. And okay. so I was going up to Cisco, Texas four days a week and then coming back home, and I was running and, and st- getting in shape like that. But throwing was was difficult, mm. and when I went back to school that that next year uh, or, or in the fall, 
my throwing was almost non-existent. I think oh, I think really? in one one game we had a guy real open behind everybody, and I threw it and underthrew him. And Coach Mayfield asked me, "How far do you think you threw that ball?" And I said, "I don't know, maybe 40, 50 yards." And in the film, I threw it twenty nine yards. <laughs> and yeah. now, th- now, now, and I'm. I hope this doesn't sound like bragging, but when I was in high school, I was, I mean, I could throw it 75 yards. Uh. And, uh, so that was, you you were never the same. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Never. And I guess your pro Uh, career, I mean, that was pretty much, uh, put on the sideline. Uh, any thought, any thought of that was, yeah. And then, then at West Texas, we ended up running the wishbone and, and I ended up, you know, starting for, for three years, even though I couldn't throw it very much that first year. And I got back where I could throw it, you know, 45, 50, 55 yards, uh, down the field. But, you know, during the wishbone, you never had to throw the ball very far. And, uh, but I learned how to do that and, and we had a good offense and had some good guys go to the pros that, that we played with and. My roommate played for 10 years for the 49ers, John Ayers. And, uh, he was a great player. And, uh, so, so when did you become serious about getting into professional wrestling? Uh, did you go back and then start training? I I know your dad had something to do with that, but, uh, you know, what point did you say, okay, I think this is, this is my path. (laughs) Well, I mean, I knew that I'd be in the promotion end. Yeah. And so it was important. I mean, I knew how to sell peanuts cause I did that when I was back in 10, 11, 12 years old, I knew how to sell concessions. I knew how to do all of those things. I knew how to sell programs. I knew how to put win- flyers on people's windows at the mall, uh, when you had a big show. Um, but I, I didn't know what it was like to be a wrestler. So I, when I graduated at midterm, uh, I graduated in the class of 77, but I finished my requirements for graduation in at midterm in December. So, uh, Tito Santana and I, we moved to Florida to, uh, go to work for Eddie Graham and be, and learn. I mean, it was just a thing where, uh, to go down there and be on the first match and, and learn what it was like to be on the road and learn how to perform and learn how to do this and that. And that's what we did. And, um, and from there, uh, Tito ended up going to Atlanta cause Barnett liked him and hired him. And, and I stayed in Florida and then I called Wahoo cause Wahoo was, uh, uh, my dad helped Wahoo get started and, uh, in the business and was always a very good, uh, friend and North Carolina was doing really, really well. And I, so I asked if I could get a job up there. So I learned for five months from Eddie Graham, who's one of the greatest ring tacticians and everything that they did in Florida. And then, then went for, in May up to North Carolina and Crockett's and Dory Funk Jr. was there and Wahoo and, uh, Mulligan, a bunch of people that my dad had helped and, mm-hmm. uh, and just to learn. And then at the end of, of 1977, uh, 
I moved back to San Antonio and it, it was at a time where they either had to start beating me or, or I needed to go. Mm-hmm. And I had been wrestling every night for a year. Uh, I was, I was ready to go to the next level, not a main event guy, but next level and start having some different kind of matches. And, and so we, I came back to, to work for my dad and we made some adjustments and made some changes and, uh, that were, that were good for, for the business. And then, uh, it wasn't too long after that is when I switched heel. Yeah. And that's unusual. I mean, you're working with your dad and I, I heard you talk about it before that, you know, a lot of those, uh, type of situations, uh, the promoter's son is never a heel. They don't, uh, the, any of those no. kind of this mentality that, that, you know, the baby faces were the ones who made you all the money, but, uh, were you just a better natural heel or what did, did you have more foresight than that? Well, I was, I was, I was much better at that. I was, mm-hmm. I was, uh, baby faces are very, very important, mm-hmm. but the, being a ring general, being a Johnny Valentine, mm-hmm. uh, was where you really wanted to be. <laughs> and, and that's where my brain just went to. And, um, it was, I, I think our business jumped by probably 40% when I switched heel and started wrestling Wahoo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it was just night and day. Yeah. You had some great mentors along the way. You mentioned Wahoo McDaniel and, uh, I've watched, I was watching some of your old promos and, uh, just great stuff as, as a heel. Um, how did, did that, did that come easy to you right away? Or is that something you had to work at and to get to that point? What, what was the process of that and, and who helped you with that? Well, I, I'm not sure that anybody really helped me with that part of it. <laughs> it was just being able to get on television and and uh, be a little bit flamboyant. But it was it was back in those days when you created your own character. Right. You you had the ability to be your own. Uh, author, yeah, screenwriter, yeah, you know, and uh, I was, I was, I wasn't a Roddy Piper, and I wasn't a Dusty Rhodes, but uh, I wasn't, I wasn't real far behind. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and that's that's uh, you know that's one thing I I really uh, miss seeing today is that I you know I I used to remember when we would do the you know cut these promos stuff that was in the event center and the other stuff you guys did for pay-per-views. And, uh, I just love the process. You'd see everybody had their different methods of how they would do it. You'd see guys out in the hallway, they'd be, you know, memorizing. There were other guys that, you know, just tell me what the storyline and storyline is and where we're going. Uh, were you pretty much like that? It was just, okay, this is where we are in the, whatever the storyline is and go, or did you yeah. actually think about what you were going to say? No, I, 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 I operated better when the camera went on. If I knew, okay, I was, 
we got a uh, bull rope match with Dusty Rhodes. Yeah. We've got a tag match for the title uh, against Magnum TA. You know, and then, uh, and, and I really can't put my finger on because I, I, uh, I, I thought about this stuff all day, every day. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I would, I would, things that watch TV, I watch a movie and, and something happened in a movie that, that got an emotion out of me. Mm-hmm. I said, Whoa, okay. Uh, I know the Erica on whatever, Young and the Restless, I think it was. Uh, or General uh, Hospital. Erica. That was the one. We, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, but Erica was on this thing. She was. Like, she was an unbelievable heel. <laughs> and I'm, I catch myself sitting on on the edge of the couch, going, "Got that rotten, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know." And back in those days, I would elaborate. Yeah. And then I'd sit back and go, "Okay, she got that emotion out of me." by saying that and doing that, I said, okay, then that's where I need to go. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was, it was stuff like that. You know, if I got, if I'd see something in a store with people overhear something and, and, or somebody get in an argument with the, the girl behind the cash register whatever the case might be. And, and it, and it stirred an emotion out of me. Then my antennas went up and said, okay, then I analyzed what, what did they say? What were they doing? What did they mean to get this emotion out of me? Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's, that really, that's awesome that you would draw from all these different places and, you know, and Tully, in a lot of ways, it's, it's a lost art. There were, if you could have the greatest gimmick in the world, you could have the greatest body, you could be a tactician in the ring, but if you couldn't get in front of that camera and sell it, uh, you were doomed. And, the, you know, maybe a manager might be able to help you out, but uh, the best of the best of the guys that could do that. Oh, yeah. No question. You know, and, and the guys, I mean, you look at Terry Funk and you look at yeah. uh, Dusty Rhodes. I mean, those guys, Flair. Um, Arn Anderson was unbelievable mm-hmm. uh, with his quick wit and yeah, and yeah. and stuff. You know, I mean, uh, and and it and JJ Dillon was just phenomenal. And then Heenan, when we were up there with him, uh, you know, I mean, it, that that kind of stuff is just is just uh, remarkable on uh, uh, the talent that these guys had. And I mean, we would go out and all four of us with JJ and not really know who's going to start and, and <laughs> whatever, and just kind of all flow and nobody try to steal any, the, the steam from anybody. And, you know, and then every now and then we'd say, okay, you know, Tully, you go first and Flair's going to go last or whatever the case might be. And, you know, cause we had a lot of times we didn't have the same match to talk about because, uh, you know, I might have been the, the TV champion or the U.S. champion or, or whatever. Flair's the world champion. We might have been talking about four different matches. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, it seemed to. Still be it, out. Yeah, go ahead. No. I, I, no, but I think that what you, you talk about these, uh, you know, that 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 period in, in, of time when, when <coughs> you know, you were you were getting to the to uh, your 
getting better and better. And it wasn't just what you were doing in the ring, but also in front of a camera. Uh, I think it was, I guess, when you were with, with Crockett in the NWA, where it really, things really changed for you. And uh, I think at the time when you went, when you got there, uh, it, it wasn't doing that well. The NWA wasn't doing that well. And you really helped build that territory. Oh gosh, there, that was, it was horrifying. Yeah. When, the first time I wrestled in Greensboro, when I went back in 1984, mm-hmm. I think we had 1500 people in the Greensboro Coliseum. It looked like a bomb scare. <laughs> wow. And that so was you- in February. And then in, in, uh, July or August, uh, Wahoo, I, we switched Wahoo heel and he was my partner and we wrestled Mulligan and flair in an Indian strap match bull rope match uh and greensboro was sold out but how long did it take to get to that point i mean you were really building well that was that was february to to july or august wow so from from that to a sellout and boy and Um, then and then you know that then the whole the whole thing started and then we did the baby doll thing, which was very successful, right. yeah. uh, in, in the rest of 84 and, and part of 85. And then the 80, end of 85, the, the horseman thing kind of started. And, uh, then it was full blown in, in 86, 87 and 88. Uh, Tully, I, I want to continue our conversation here, but I want to take a time out also Because, you know, a lot of our listeners, of course, they love professional wrestling, but many of them love fantasy football. Now, folks, if you love fantasy football, uh, make sure you stay ahead of the curve. I'm going to tell you how you are going to get ahead of everybody else uh, with a new podcast. It's called Fantasy Foresight, and it's hosted by Jay and Ben. And uh, these two guys really believe me. They know their stuff. Uh, They focus 100% on fantasy football. That's what this podcast is all about. It's called Fantasy Foresight, the podcast. Now, they share total foresight uh, on the game with private metrics and projections to help you win your fantasy football league. These are the guys who are going to help you do it. If you play fantasy football, whether you're a savvy vet or this is your rookie season, you cannot afford to miss their podcast. Again, it's called Fantasy Foresight. And you can find it on iTunes, okay? It's called Fantasy Foresight, the podcast. Do it if you love fantasy football. And, you know, uh, Tully, I I don't recommend uh, many other podcasts, but uh, if folks are into fantasy football, they've got to check out Fantasy Foresight, the podcast. Okay, let's get back to it here. That rain, I guess we should call it, when it was the four of you, uh, did it ever, did, was it ever matched again in your eyes or was that combination really it? Um, which combination are you talking about? Well, the original, when you had Ole and, and Arn and you and, and Rick. Now, Ole got fired uh, probably six months in, uh-huh. into the thing. And we were successful with Ole, we were successful with Luger, and we were successful with Barry. Mm-hmm. extremely successful with Barry. I mean, that, that was the group for a couple of years. And, uh, the, what do you think was the best combination? Uh, the best combination was the, the group with Barry. 
Really? Barry, Arn, yeah. myself, and Rick, the ones that got inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. You had you had the best performers uh, that could do absolutely anything. Mm. Uh, Oli Oli was in his vein was a great worker and a great performer, but there were you had to you had to deal with Oli in 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 that vein. Mm-hmm. He couldn't go out and do the stuff that we could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, fly around and get beat up and be press slammed by the road warriors and all that kind of stuff. Whereas when Barry became uh, part of the group, he became the other single. I shifted from the single to be an arms partner. Mm-hmm. And then you had a tag team that had a big guy and a, and a smaller guy that could do anything. We could wrestle the two most powerful guys on the planet, the road warriors, and people would buy tickets and we could wrestle, uh, Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson mm-hmm. and they would buy a ticket. Yeah. So, and, and anything in between. And then you had Barry who could, who was one of the greatest performers of all time. Uh, anyway and then you certainly had flair who could work with anybody yeah and yeah. uh that was by far the, the the best group now in my opinion and whatever you know i don't want to just be prejudiced but i am a little bit um i i told jj when we walked out of the ring in philadelphia this is the end of an era is what I told him, quote. And if you ever ask JJ, he'll tell you that. As we stepped through the ropes, after we locked, dropped the, the titles to the Midnight Express in Philadelphia, and then Arn and I went to the WWF, mm-hmm. I said, this is the end of an era. Yeah. Now, now, WCW spent, and I wasn't there much and didn't watch much, uh, when Arn and I became the brainbusters, we we had other objectives in in our minds, but they tried to put any number of people with flair mm-hmm. and call them the four horsemen. Yeah. And when Arn went back, they they almost got it going, but the formula was changed. Because if you didn't, all the other groups that were greatly successful, the formula was Rick, Arn, and Tully. Mm-hmm. That was the nucleus. And the other guy could be Ole or Luger when he was starting, and uh, he was starting. Yeah. You know? And uh, then Barry, well, we were all very, very successful. So after that, the, the only change, they changed the formula. And even though they were trying to pour the juice to it, mm-hmm. it didn't work. It came closer to working because you had Rick and Arn. You had, you had two of the three. Well, the, the, uh, you know, I don't know all the backstory to what went down in the end and went and, and had you and, and Arn eventually, eventually going to the WWF. But why do you think they fumbled that? Didn't they realize that this, that it worked and, 
uh, tried to fix it. <laughs> Are you talking about when Arn and I left the WWF? Yeah, when you left. I, but uh, did, did, did they not realize they couldn't they at least understand the the draw and that meant money? Well, but you had non-wrestling people running that company for Ted yeah. Turner. Yeah. And they were too busy trying to... Uh, they didn't have a drug policy at their company. Mm. I flunked a drug test with the WWF. They tried to use that to play hardball and have Arn and I take less money than what we were promised to leave the WWF. Mm. And, and, uh, so they took Flair back. I mean, took Arn back and, and he agreed to take less money. Uh, they reneged on my offer and didn't offer the thing because they figured, I guess they didn't figure I was worth it. And <coughs> so there you have it. Yeah. But I'm talking about before you went to the, the WWF and that, and the reason you guys, like you said, it was the end of an era. Um, Oh yeah. Why, well, they why got did they fumble that so bad to, to end that though? I mean, it, like you said, it was, it was, well, it, it, well, they ended it because I, I, I wanted to leave. But why were you, because was it a money issue or was there more, there were more to it? Oh, they were, they were signing people contracts mm -hmm. and they weren't signing me an arm. What? And to the, guaranteed money contracts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, right. and we were, did you already the guys, care? Pardon me? Did they think you were already there or you weren't going to go anywhere? I mean, what was the thinking behind oh, that? I, I don't know what they thought. Two of the but, biggest draws. And, uh, but, but I was, I was told after my, I had an, I had a key employee, uh, interview with Ted Turner's people because they were, um, wanting to buy Crockett's company. Yeah. And, I said some th They told me to be honest, so I was honest, and uh, I I I wasn't savvy enough to know that be honest really means go in there and lie. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So mm -hmm. I went in and told them what was going on mm. when I was asked, and I was told that I was not loyal on the telephone mm. and I was kicked off the private jet. So I had to fly. I mean, I had to drive to all these towns. And so in essence, what I was being was spanked. Mm -hmm. And so I figured at, you know, 33 years old and making this guy a bunch of stinking money. Mm that I didn't need to be spanked and kicked off the jet. Yeah. So I politely said, I quit. Do you want the belts tonight in Houston or tomorrow night in Philadelphia? I'm done. And they didn't make an effort to try and fix that. Realizing no. that you were going to go. No. And I didn't know that Arn was going to go with me, but he did. Uh-huh. And I think you, I guess you had an open offer at the WWF at the time, right? Yes. We'd already, we'd already been to Vince's house and talked yeah. to him and et cetera, et cetera. 
How did how did the how did the brain busters come about? Was that something that you guys were uh, kind of handed, or how did that all well, yeah, happen? Yeah, you, you don't have any input. <laughs> it just I, I just didn't understand. I remember at the time thinking brain busters. I mean, why can't they? You know, they were always brilliant at at if there was a gimmick down south that really worked, they would find a variation somehow and let and let those people stay the who they were true to their character and just uh i didn't understand what what, what how was that pitched to you guys i it wasn't it was just there so did it ever uh i mean you guys are still great i mean you still cut great promos did it but did it ever feel to you as though it worked um you know i it it did, um, <coughs> excuse me. It it worked very well, actually, because mm-hmm. when we got there, I mean, you had an A town, B town, C town, right. and the C towns were not doing well at all. And mm-hmm. when when we defeated Demolition mm-hmm. for the for the tag team titles, the C towns started doing really good business and uh the a town and b town were were doing great business anyway um and so that was very successful for them but it ended up being a lateral move for us yeah and when we left the other company just plummeted Mm. and uh you know and they tried to put everything into the horseman thing and get it back. And, uh, you know, and after a year and a half of, of being away and, and now Ted Turner's bought the company and, and given all this money out, I told Arn, I said, look, we need to, I said, I'm 35 years old. My back hurts. I said, I can't do this, but five more years, you're younger than me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I said, we need to call and see what we can get. And if it's, if it's worthwhile, then we need to go back and reform the four horsemen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I called the office down there and, uh, and asked them if they wanted to put the horsemen back together again. And, and they literally called back in five minutes and, uh, they offered Arn and I each two, $250,000 a piece. Mm-hmm. And, well, uh, no, and, and I thought that that was good enough. Uh, so you were making that kind of money with the WWF at the time? No, we were, I think I made 180. Mm. 180 was the most I made there. Yeah. And, and, but I, uh, made, I made that in 10 months. Yeah. But you said it was kind of a lateral move for you and Arn did, did, uh, yeah, but that's what we were, that's what we were making with, uh, with the other company when right. we left and went, you know, when they ran us off or ran me off. Um, but when, when we, we called back, and asked if they wanted the horsemen to go. That was the end of, that was the mid 1989. So we'd already been, 
with the WWF for a little over a year. Right. Well, you know, when it, when it came down to it, you had, I think had already pretty much made your mind you were leaving. And before you, you took that drug test, uh, was that just your lifestyle at the time, Tully, or did it catch up to you? Was it a, a, a big problem or, or what? No, no, it wasn't. It, you know what it was? Mm-hmm. I bought, I bought a gram of cocaine and gave it to these girls up in, we were up in uh, Wisconsin yeah. and just to look like I wasn't a prude, which I wasn't, but I didn't do any of that stuff because I knew there was always a, a random drug test. All I did was, was lick the inside of a plastic bag. Mm. Wow, and, that's all it took. <laughs> but, but it was enough to flunk a drug test the next yeah. afternoon in Philadelphia. And, uh, but I mean, it, it, you, you look back, I have, I have no regrets. Uh, and, uh, it, it is, that was, that was the, the last straw of not the last straw. It was the next to last straw of what it took to have me, uh, come to a, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in my life, mm-hmm. which I could never do without. Yeah. And, and that was, uh, an absolute, uh, uh, whatever it takes for a person to meet Christ in their life, it's worth it. And mm-hmm. to, end my wrestling career, which it's not logical for my wrestling career to end like that. Just all of a yeah. sudden he's gone. Yeah. But, but it, it was worth it, uh, to, to know that and to meet Christ in a very real way and, and change the, my path and change everything about me. Uh, and so it was a it was a very uh, very moving moment, and and still, and that moment continues. And this November will be uh, twenty nine years. Wow, that's amazing. Um, you know, at the time, and, the, and, I'm, and the, as you say, you look at it as a blessing now of uh, things that happened in your life. But it is really incredible that. Uh, when you left the WWF, that it, it was it was like almost collusion. That how in the world could you not be picked up somewhere? Uh, I mean, do you think it was it was divine that uh, because really oh, there was, with, how many oh, other wrestlers have done much much worse? <laughs> well, and, I mean, I, I'm the only wrestler that ever flunked a drug test that never went back to work. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, but like you said, it was for a a reason looking back and, and, uh, but let let me, let me just go through the whole story for, for you and for your listeners. Okay. Okay. When I flunked the drug test, that was in Philadelphia. Okay. That was in October. We got no word about that drug test until after we did TV in no, in we did TV in Wichita 
on Halloween night. And I wrestled the ultimate warrior. Mm-hmm. And we were getting ready to do the thing because we were Andre's partners in, in, in Survivor Series. Mm-hmm. The next morning, we jump on the plane, fly to Chicago, drive to Rochester, Illinois for the night show. Five in the evening, Vince calls me on the telephone and, and asked me a very good question, and I didn't have an answer. Uh, he said, what are you doing with your life? Mm-hmm. And blah, 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 blah. And I buy him hot around because I didn't have an answer. And he uh, told me to turn my plane tickets in and, and to go home that I was, I was being suspended for six weeks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we were going to be released from our contracts, uh, Survivor Series, which was Thanksgiving night. So basically in 22 days, I was being let go. Uh, <laughs> so I flew back to North Carolina and, uh, I was working out. I was getting strong. I was that Saturday morning after, after Thanksgiving, I was going to walk back on the superstation with, uh, all my glory and hold up four fingers and Arn mm-hmm. was going to be with me. And, and, uh, we were going to change wrestling history at that moment. And, uh, on November 13th at one o'clock in the morning, Flair called me and told me that, uh, they had found out about the drug test and that they had reneged on my contract. Then they reneged on the deal. Mm. And so November 2nd, Vince cans me November 13th. WCW reneges on, on the deal. Now I don't have a, I don't have a job or a place to work. Mm. And when I hung the phone up from flair, I, I, I really, and I've told this story a lot, but I mean, it is very, very difficult to put into words, the anger, the rage, the disappointment, the despair that I was going through. I, I laid in my bed and I was, I, I, I couldn't move and my brain was going 900 million miles a second. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted my brain to shut off. And so I could go to sleep and then I'll deal with this tomorrow because this, this is, this is stupid and there's gotta be a way around this. And at four Oh three in the morning, three and a half hours later of this mental chaos, I said five words. I said, Jesus take over my life. And it was the first time I'd ever said the name Jesus when I wasn't cussing somebody. (laughs) And instantaneously there was a peace and a calmness that I had never felt before that came over me and I don't know if it was a voice speaking to me. I don't know if it was just hearing it in my brain, but God spoke to me and said, you're going to be okay. I fell asleep. I woke up the next day and Everything 
you know, I mean, I didn't hear, I didn't see lightning or anything like that. I, I wasn't, uh, rolling out of bed going, amen, hallelujah. Didn't really understand what had happened to me. Uh, my dad called me two days later and, uh, he said, what's happened to you? And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? What's happened to me? He said, you don't sound the same. <laughs> and I said, dad, what are you talking about? He said, you're not cussing. And I was with colorful, lazy language. I was pretty flamboyant back in mm -hmm. those days. Mm -hmm. And I went, wow, I'm not. And that was really the first thing that really was a physical evidence that there had been a change inside my heart and an inside me. And, uh, and then I started seeing all this stuff Man, I hadn't had a drink in two days. Uh, I wasn't out calling up all my, uh, girls that were around. Mm. Uh, oh my gosh. I said, this is, this is wow. And, uh, so I didn't, I didn't know what to do. So I, I told dad what had happened. And, uh, he started sending me tapes from the church that he was going to Cornerstone church in San Antonio, where mm -hmm. John Hagee was the pastor. And, uh, uh, and so I was listening to these tapes and wow, they were making sense. And so I did that, started watching, reading the Bible and, and didn't know where to start reading the Bible, but, uh, you know, thought I got some help from some people, but I, 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 I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to act. I didn't know how to be a Christian. I didn't know how to go to church. I didn't know any of that stuff. So I just sat at home and, uh, and listened to probably three or four of these messages every day and just kind of was a recluse for, uh, a couple of weeks, maybe a month. And, you know, I was waiting for the horseman thing. Somebody had to get their mind right and be crazy that this was not the thing to do and whatever. And then Arn came back on TV and then they threw other people in there. And so they were just writing me off, mm -hmm. but that had to be a God thing because that's absolutely insane not to have me back. And, and, uh, Tell me, what do you think would have happened if you would have gotten that call? Let's say you did get a call from them, or let's say Vince would have picked up the phone, which he's done, and said, all right, look, we're just going to let you, uh, you know, we're gonna take the next three months off, and then we're going to bring you back, um, which he has done many times. How that would have changed your course? How do you think you would have dealt with that if you would have gotten well, back Well, I, I, I would have probably... Um backslid and lost everything huh. uh because uh, it, it took me literally 
14 months mm. to really learn what it was like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Mm. In fact, my book, when it gets finished, is called, I'm, I've changed the title of it 10 times, but the title that makes the most sense is when I, three days before Christmas of 1990, my, I just got married, just found out I was going to have a child. Mm -hmm. My oldest child was born September 6th of 1991. And I didn't have a job and I had been unemployed for, uh, 14 months. I, I'd read the whole Bible through. Uh, I've, I'd been going to a church. I had been volunteering. I'd been learning and learning and learning and learning and learning. And I, I couldn't get a job. I mean, it was, I was college graduate. Yeah. Uh, I was too, too required too much money. I had too much notoriety, I, too much this, too much that, and nobody would hire me. And, and so uh, I, I, I ran out of money. I borrowed some money from my dad, caught my house payments up, caught uh, my bills up, and said, okay, uh, I, I, I don't know what else to do. And, and the pressure was so great. The financial pressure was so great. Three days before Christmas of 1990, I was in my prayer closet praying and I said, okay, God, I quit. I'm done. You tell me that you're going to feed me. You're going to take care of me. You're going to, you're, you're going to take care of everything. I quit. You have to do it. I've done, I'm, I'm tired of doing everything that I think I can do. And, and so when I did that, there was a tremendous heaviness that left me, mm -hmm. went through Christmas. Um, and my, my phone rang the day after Christmas and somebody asked me if, to come tell my story to their men's group. And I said, okay, I can do that. Then another group called me a little bit later. And then another group called me and another group called me. And in five days, Sean, I scheduled 75 <laughs> engagements. Wow. With an unlisted telephone number. Hmm. Wow. And <clears throat> all as I had to do, was move into a position where I depended on God rather than Tully being the forceful go-getter that I always was. And so my book needs to be called I Quit. Mm. And certainly there's, there's a lot of extra stuff when you, when you consider the I Quit match and all of that kind of stuff. But God wants his people to depend on him 
And when we do that, we see supernatural miracles. Mm -hmm. And back in 1990 and 91, when you schedule uh, 75 speaking (laughs) engagements with an unlisted telephone number, (laughs) oh my gosh. Well, you know, and and I've... uh... I've had Mark Miro on before, and I, I don't know if you know what he does now, but he goes to high schools and talks to kids yeah. about empowerment. And um, he traveled a, a, a similar path on how, you know, that's what he does now. And he said that, that was all my always my calling. Uh, do you look back down and see that a lot of what you were able to do in front of a camera uh, in professional wrestling prepared you for this? Um. Speaking in front of a live audience is a lot different than speaking into a camera, mm-hmm. but you did that in arenas too, everywhere. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, but there, there is when you, when you have the ability to connect, mm-hmm. you can connect through a TV camera. You can connect to a live audience. Mm-hmm. but it's about connection. Yeah. It's about having the, the right stuff, whether it's the right story, the right empathy, the right message to get people to drop their defenses and listen. And, and I know that, a lot of you, you've that, gone into prisons uh, everywhere. And do you particularly enjoy that or, 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 or feel that that's, something you were supposed to do as well. Cause I think that you, you do that a lot, right? That's what I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been, I, I, I spoke in the first four years, I spoke in almost 400 churches, uh, all around North and South Carolina, Virginia, Georgia, uh, Alabama. Uh, and, and that, that's a lot of speaking. Yeah. And, um, in 1994, I got invited to go to my first prison event with Bill Glass, who used to play for the Cleveland Browns mm-hmm. back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am now, I've been one of their speakers for 20, since 94. So 94 to now is what, 24 years, 25 wow. years? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then I was on staff setting up events this and that, you know, I mean, all of that kind of stuff. But now I am on staff at Cornerstone Church for uh, Pastor John and Pastor Matt. And I am the director of the jail and prison ministry. Mm. And uh, so that's a department that that uh, uh, I spend. Uh, I spent six hours at the jail yesterday. Uh, we do... I go back to the jail on every Sunday. We live stream the 11 o'clock service into the Bear County Jail. <laughs> and uh, we take teams of volunteers in there. Then I have a class on Monday. Then on the October 6th, we have a large evangelistic event. And we have one of those every other month uh, at the county jail. Um, and then we have another at uh, one of the one of the prison facilities uh, here in San Antonio, we have that uh, coming up on October twentieth. So, no, 
Well, uh, I would I would say that's what I was called to do. So yeah, and uh, you know you've been inducted into you know the Hall of Fames of NWA and now of, of course with the WWE. Uh, as you look back, are are you at peace with it all? Do you miss it, or you just uh, you know went on with your life like uh, you that you were supposed to follow that trail? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was the the wrestling business was. A tremendous uh, uh, thrill, tremendous part of of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, my young life, my dad, and it supported us and uh, all of that, and supported me until I was thirty five years old, and uh, and then God started supporting me when I finally let Him, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> and so that that that's where we are, mm-hmm. and. You know, I mean, it, it is, I'm completely content uh, with where I am. I, I work hard at what I do. I, I know that God uses me and uses my uh, my natural pushing and, and knocking on doors to, to get stuff done and get, get doors open. Uh, and, and I'm thrilled for that. But all of that, is done in that position of me depending on God because the doors that get opened are doors that I approach in prayer before I do go and knock on a door. Yeah. Well, and, uh, it it has continued. Your daughter, Tessa is, uh, in the business, uh, did you try and dissuade her at all, or uh, you felt if this is her dream, that's what she wants to do, and, and you totally support it? Yes. I, I support her. Uh, I support all my children. Mm-hmm. Um, they you, you can't always be whacking away at, at their dreams and at their what they think is important, just like, you know, people, my dad never whacked away at my dreams. Mm-hmm and uh belittled them and, and that kind of stuff and uh i i do encourage my children to have a relationship with god that you will have much more success with a relationship with god in this world whether it's the wrestling business whether it's the business whether it's uh whatever you choose to do if you have that personal relationship with god he will take you places that you never would have expected and take you much farther than you ever thought you could have gone on your own. Mm. And that's, that's the only encouragement that I do. Um, I, I have told Tessa, uh, about the wrestling business. I, I said, you need to, you need to go learn all the fundamentals. I said, George South would be a very, very good place to go learn. Cause I wasn't in Charlotte at the time. Yeah. Uh, when she started and George is very good. And, and I've known a number of people that he's taught the fundamentals of everything too. And, and, uh, he, he did a great job with her. Um, and then I told her, I've, I've done a, a couple of seminars that she was at and, and stuff like that. But her knowledge had to get to a certain level her ability had to get to a certain level before she could really understand 
the stuff that I was talking about. Yeah. And well, I tell you, uh, Tully, uh, once again, um, uh, here on primetime with Sean Mooney, uh, the podcast, as I said, uh, many of these stories are so inspirational. Yours is, is truly one of inspiration. And, um, how can folks get in touch or learn more about your ministries or if they just like to get in contact with you, do you have an email or Twitter or what's the best way for, people um, to- well, I had a Twitter, yeah. but somebody stole it. Oh boy. <laughs> and, and I don't know how you, and I had a verified account. I don't know how you get that back. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I don't, I don't do that much on, on social media. Um, I do have a, I do, I am on Facebook, um, and people can, can message me on that. Okay. Uh, I don't have a website that's up, up and working. Uh, you can always get in touch with me at Cornerstone Church. Uh, just call and ask for me. Uh, but it is, it is, uh, uh, I want you to have me back on when my book gets finished. Yeah. I was going to say, when can we expect that out? Do you have a, a target? Uh, we're, we're, we're two years late. <laughs> uh, my, my, my author that is, uh, writing it for me, uh, is very, very talented. And she's had a couple of uh, issues with some family that have set her back a little bit. Um, but, uh, we've got a publisher and everything and it needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I I did uh, tell her the other day, I, I said it needs to happen before everybody forgets about me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that won't happen. Not in the, uh, the world of professional wrestling. I, I saw how folks were around you guys at the, uh, in Chicago, at Starcast, boy, as uh, as Tully mentioned, folks. Oh my God, uh, man, was, it was that was unbelievable, yeah. wasn't it? Oh yeah, with Lex there, and uh, really, it was Animal. it was yeah, it was, it was a great weekend, and that was the first time I'd seen you in a in a long, long time, and uh, you look great, and it's it's awesome to see that you're so at peace and and have really uh, found your place, and it's it's great, and I really really appreciate you coming on, and I'd love to have you back on when the book comes out, Tully. Well, Sean, thank you very much. I know we went over a little over an hour. I hope that doesn't mess up your. No, no, believe me, I would have. I, I would keep you. We could talk for two hours, but uh, I, I told you that's how long we go. <laughs> and I know uh, uh, we we it took a little bit for us to get together, but I'm really I'm so glad that we did it. And um, I hope I see you down the road soon. Well, bless.